is Snails and Oysters. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot for sake of old lang by? Old lang by. Oh my God. <laughs> Welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi weekly, bi coastal, bisexual movie podcast. I'm your co host, Nat Roberts. And I'm your other co-host, Allie Rogers, who did not know about that intro. (laughs) Well, I wanted to get your honest reaction. Tell me truthfully, how do you think uh, my singing career is going to go? Well, you know, I think if you're really trying to make it in the music industry, a virgin sacrifice always helps. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well played. Well done, right? Yes, we, we chose the totally seasonally appropriate Jennifer's Body as our final episode of 2021. Yes. We definitely should have released this around Halloween, but we we are bad at planning ahead. <laughs> we have no sense of time and we are bad at planning ahead. Yep. Except we got one really good episode completely by coincidence. We did. Goldeneye was released like perfectly right before. And that we did on purpose. <laughs> that we definitely did on purpose. You know what? I think in this coming year in 2022, I think one of our resolutions for this podcast should be to think ahead Timing wise for our episodes a little more. I think that's great. Do you have any resolutions for the podcast for 2022? I am always saying this to you. I don't think I'm saying it on the podcast, hopefully too much, but I'm definitely interested in bringing in more research. Mm. And what's funny is I've always thought of that as academic articles or flashing back to JSTOR, <laughs> but I'm realizing it doesn't have to be that complicated. Even like a movie review sure. from the year that the movie came out, I think can really give us some really interesting insight into like how the film was received and talked about. Absolutely. I think one of my resolutions is for my preparation, I want to start listening to interviews with the creators more mm. after watching the movie and get a better sense of what they intended with it. It's a really good resolution. And well, I I know we had talked about this before recording. We've been ta- we have been talking about this for months, but one of our resolutions that's actually relevant to our listeners' lives is that we agreed we're going to try and start a Patreon this year mm-hmm. so that we can finally cash in on you know, our wildly popular. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we're just we're leaving so much money on the table. Absolutely. Like we've got 35 people listening to our show on average. And That's, I think what, you know, they can each give what a thousand dollars a month. That seems yeah, reasonable because it's so important to just support the artists that you enjoy, you know, their support work the you artists really and their, you know, need for lattes yeah. like and large screen TVs. No, but in all seriousness, I think. We're definitely interested in using the Patreon funds to actually improve the podcast. Yes. I'm really interested in the new year and getting a 
better microphone setup that eats fewer AA batteries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd love to uh, buy some like actual soundproofing instead of just using my pillows, which is what I currently do. Yes. Yeah. I've always been like renting the movies off Amazon. And also we recently decided to pitch in for the Criterion channel. Yeah. Just like things like that. We're not using this as a get rich quick scheme. Not yet. Not yet. I, I also think that a good resolution for this coming year would be to have more guests on the show. Uh, I I thought that transition was going to come more naturally to me than it did. <laughs> no, I was actually thinking about that the other day in the shower. One thing that I love about this episode is Olga brings in such a fresh perspective and also a lot of like actual knowledge, you know, <laughs> about like theory, which I thought really added a lot to our conversation. So yeah, I definitely want to have more guests on. I think it's really fun. I agree. And I, I hope our listeners will enjoy this episode. I really, I personally really enjoyed talking to Olga, uh, but we'll get to her proper introduction in just a minute. First, I think we both would like to say a quick thank you to you. Yes. The listener. Thank you, listener. Listeners, plural. Yes, plural. There are more than one of you. Thank you <laughs> to, you know, Alex, Rebecca. I know you're listening, <laughs> Billy. What's funny is that we probably could name all of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I told Allie the other day, making this show has been the highlight of my year. Um, I just have had so much fun. And the fact that anyone cares to listen to it is wild to me. Yes, same. And um, I really appreciate everyone who has given feedback about it. Yep. We're always open to constructive criticism or any of the things you'd like to hear that you feel like you don't hear that much or yeah. even like movies. If you're a listener and there's a movie you feel like, what the fuck? Why haven't they done this yet? I'd be really curious to know what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Like if there's a movie you want us to cover, tweet it at us. We're at Snails Oysters on Twitter. You're as much a part of this as we are. Yeah, it's been really Really fun. I love watching these movies. I love talking about the movies with Nat. Nat, you literally bring so much like smart commentary, but also wow. you bring really great film history into the show that just like makes it so much better. Oh, are you gonna cry? I didn't. I, <laughs> I wasn't ready for a nice compliment. <laughs> I love making this show with you, Ali. Seriously, your perspective is just always. I never know what you're gonna say in the best possible way. You just have such great takes on things that I never would have even thought of. But no one is as good or important as our listeners. Yes, <laughs> No absolutely. one's smarter, smarter. <laughs> you guys are all the most beautiful, no smartest. No one's more pretty. Yeah, just absolutely best taste. brilliant. They have the best taste. Anyway, let's remind our listeners about the genius cult classic that is Jennifer's Body. Jennifer's Body. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to sync that, but then I just said Ifra's Body. <laughs> Jennifer's Body is a 2009 horror comedy directed by Karen Kusama and written by Diablo Cody. The film stars Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox as childhood best friends Needy and Jennifer living in small town Devil's Kettle. Their friendship, which is already a bit tense because Megan Fox plays kind of the hot school cheerleader while Amanda plays the classic, oh, she has glasses, she's a nerd. <laughs> but this dynamic is disrupted when Needy and Jennifer attend an indie rock show by the band Low Shoulder that results 
in a tragic fire. In the aftermath of this blaze, Low Shoulder kidnaps Jennifer, sacrifices her to the devil to help their music career, and inadvertently turn her into a flesh-eating succubus. So the now-possessed Jennifer begins seducing and eating several of her classmates, um, an exchange student, a really great football player, (laughs) uh, the local emo kid who I was totally crushing on through the movie. And Needy, all the while, is trying to find out the truth about what is happening to her friend. Jennifer's feeding frenzy reaches its apex when she kills and tries to devour Needy's boyfriend, the sweet and wholesome Chip. Needy puts an end to Jennifer's spree by killing her, gaining part of Jennifer's power in the process. Of course, no one believes Needy that this was just, you know, a demon possession gone wrong. She's committed to a mental institution but she actually escapes and exacts revenge on Low Shoulder in a very kick-ass credit sequence. The film was wildly mismarketed on its release, which we'll get into. And there was a sort of a general cultural backlash against the star Megan Fox and the writer Diablo Cody. They had just been way overexposed with their previous work, uh, all of which contributed to a very disappointing box office return. However, in recent years, uh, critics have reappraised Jennifer's body as an unfairly maligned feminist satire. And yeah, I definitely think there is a lot to this film. It's a very rich text that should not be written off. Absolutely. And I'm excited to get into that with today's guest, writer, writer's assistant and labor activist Olga Lexell. Olga, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being our first guest. Thanks to you, our second guest will have a great experience. (laughs) I'm like truly so nervous. I'm not the first guest. You are the first guest. Of all time? Of all time. Oh, 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 I'm so honored. I would have dressed up if I'd known. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an audio medium. It would have been wasted anyway. That's Now, Olga, when we invited you to be on the show, I shared our list of like potential episodes that we've been thinking about doing and just told you to pick one that, you know, you felt like talking about and you picked Jennifer's body. So I'm curious, what's your your history with this movie? And if it's just that you love it, that's cool, too. Yeah, I actually when Nat first sent me that list of bisexual movies, well, first he asked me, like, what movie would you want to talk about? And I couldn't think of any bisexual movies off the top of my head. <laughs> and then Nat mentioned Jennifer's Body, which is a film that when I watched it as a semi-closeted teen at the age of, like, 14, maybe, I hated it. Mm. And when I went to a screening of it about two years ago and saw it again for the first time since then, I was 27 at the time, so 10 years went by, and... I fucking loved it, and <laughs> it was one of the gayest movies I've ever seen. It was so ahead of its time. I actually feel that Karen Kusama, the director, was completely wronged by society because that movie was critically panned. Totally. And it's an incredible, incredible movie. I think people took it too seriously, so mm-hmm. I feel like it deserves a comeback. I agree. And I think you're not the only one who who had that exact experience. I was doing some research and like you said, most critics hated it when it came out Like, and audiences hated it even more. But in in recent years, there's been a strong contingent of critics saying like, no, actually, this is kind of brilliant. We need to talk about Jennifer's body again. And I, I think so 
much of it was people hating Megan Fox more than anything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. She's another person who I feel has been so wronged by our culture and society. And it's something that I feel like I've really only realized recently. And it got me thinking about this movie again, just because like she kind of went away. Yeah. Jennifer's body, I feel like came out right after the first Transformers, right? Yeah, it was 2009. So it would have been about a year or two after. Yeah. So I feel like it was so... Like, people just saw her in Transformers, and they didn't want to see her do anything else. Mm. I feel like in this movie, she's so viscerally disgusting that people (laughs) were just, like, upset by that. Yeah. Her new movie, Till Death, I highly recommend it. It's a really good, like, companion piece to Jennifer's body in a way. Highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Interesting. I haven't heard about it. Yeah, it just came out. It's like a tiny indie horror film. Cool. It's incredible. Seriously, check it out. You were talking about like she's like viscerally terrifying in this movie, and that's true. And I think that I read an interview with Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, of course, for, for our listeners, also the screenwriter behind Juno and Tully. And she talked about how studio executives refused to understand what this movie was about. And so they only marketed it towards horny teenage boys because they couldn't see past Megan Fox and her involvement in the Transformers franchise. So the few people who did go see this movie when it came out went into it expecting like a sexy horror romp. And instead, it's this like really deep metaphor for just so much traumatic shit in our culture. (laughs) Yeah. And I actually, um, at the screening I went to two years ago, uh, Jennifer, sorry, Jennifer, uh, (laughs) Megan, Megan Fox was there. Wow. Yes. It was amazing because I think that for a long time, she didn't talk about this movie ever. Mm. Um, and she kind of went away for a while too. And like, people didn't really hear from her, but in this, in this screening, she really gave like her side of it. And she talked about how, like, she read out loud a lot of the reviews that originally came out and talked about how like deeply sexist so many of them are, Mm. um, like so many of the reviews written by even like completely mainstream publications like the Rolling Stone focused on like her appearance in it mm. in, in like a really objectifying and disgusting way. Yeah, if you look at the one star reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it's disgusting. It's like really, really wild that people felt so okay talking about this movie the way that they did. Yeah. I will die on this hill. I, Megan Fox, we owe her big time. I really think that we owe her an apology because um, she's she's chill. Yeah. Yet another like young female star that this country has fucked over. Yeah. It's a bummer. I think she could have had a massive, massive career. Mm. Um, And it's hard to say whether, you know, whether Transformers had a role in this and Michael Bay having so much press about her and the way he like specifically objectified her in Transformers. But it was like an active marketing decision. Karen Kusama was at that screening I went to and she talked about the um, uh, they did audience tests with the movie and the only people they invited to the audience tests were 15-year-old boys. Oh, Lord. When she was reading the cards afterward, they all said things like, like, more boobs was one that she read out loud. Ugh. And it's it's really awful because, like, the studio sided with that. Wow. Like, the studios totally thought that was an okay way to view this film. Like, it's almost, I'm really curious about what went into, like, Karen Kusama's idea to cast Megan Fox as well, because like it was either the best idea of all time or the worst idea of all time. 
this could have been a massively successful movie with another actor, but at the same time, like, you can't really do this movie without Megan Fox. <laughs> yeah, the fact that it didn't do well has nothing to do with her, really. Now, Allie, this was your first time seeing the movie, right? Yeah, and it's actually my first time really watching Megan Fox in a movie because I do not participate in the Transformers franchise. And so I've never seen a Transformers. I just have known of Megan Fox as like kind of a media entity and celebrity. And to me, she just always seen like that type of celebrity who's just so pretty and so symmetrical that it gets into this like almost uncanny valley level of pretty. <laughs> so it was really cool watching this movie because I was like, she's so good. Like she's such a good actress. And she's also really funny. Like the way she delivers so many lines in such a deadpan way. I just thought she was hilarious. I also just thought this was like not an easy role at all. It was like super physical, super like creepy and gross and expressed like so many emotions from like insecurity to just hunger for flesh. I had like truly a great time. And I also loved Amanda Seyfried. I thought she was so good. I didn't watch this movie because I was like lame in 2009 and didn't want to see like gross horror movies and I loved it. Yeah, I feel the same. I I hadn't seen it before and for similar reasons. Like I I only started really watching horror in college because my friends forced me to. So so for me this this movie I w- I had been aware of it and recently became aware of like the the new critical consensus growing about it. But yeah, I think it's entirely warranted. As someone watching this movie for the first time in Year of Our Lord 2021, I think that the themes of feminism and themes of of anger and trauma are so obvious that I, I can't imagine how anyone missed them in 2009. But leave it to a studio executive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I think really made me reconsider this movie especially was um, – in college, I studied horror film Whoa. like really closely, and I read a really good piece from uh, Laura Mulvey, I believe. I, I could be thinking of a different uh, feminist film critic, but <laughs> somebody historical who wrote about how feminist horror is kind of about disgust mm. and violations of boundaries. Mm. Um, and it specifically talked about cultural fears around women. Mm-hmm. I feel like this movie is about that. And the scene that I always think of, which when I first saw it, I didn't really get, but was that part in the movie where she just looks disgusting and she's sitting in front of the mirror, she hasn't eaten and uh, she's putting that foundation on. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she just looks completely nasty, like objectively disgusting and she's just covering herself with it. It's like, it is kind of an on the nose metaphor if you only think of it in that way. But I don't know. I also think of it as like, this movie is so much about like things about the human body that like people are afraid of in a really visceral way. Like it's not, uh, uh, am I making any sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and I think I remember that moment too, because I think it also speaks to another good quality about this film, which is that it's very empathetic towards almost all its characters. Like I think other than the Satanist pop band, 
Most of the characters get treated with a pretty fair hand, including Jennifer. That moment in particular is like a a moment of real vulnerability for her character. It really displays the insecurities that needy Amanda Seyfried's character uses later to distract her. Mm. But it it also fleshes out her character beyond just this. um, I think uh, A.O. Scott reviewed this movie for the New York Times and was one of the few contemporary critics who even had a clue what was going on. Um, Mm -hmm. But he pointed out how Jennifer is sort of a cipher where it's, you know, everybody sees something different in her that they want. Mm. Uh, or they want her to be. And so that scene is sort of us seeing her alone, really, with no audience to perform for other than us. Yeah. I, I, that moment stood out to me as well. It makes me think of, and sorry, the, the writer I mentioned wasn't Laura Mulvey, it was Barbara Creed. She calls this idea the monstrous feminine. Mm, that's a beautiful phrase. Yeah, her entire theory is that in horror films, woman monsters reflect a male perspective of female sexuality Mm. they're either like an elderly mother a monstrous womb Mm. uh, a witch or like a castrator Mm. some variety of that yeah and this movie reminds me so much of that totally it's always amplified through sexuality i think is kind of the key difference and i feel like this film just subverts that so well yeah (laughs) It, it does lead into that trope a little bit Like on its face, for sure, in that like, oh, she eats guys after she has sex with them. But like, uh, I don't know. I just something about it. I feel like it's it's so over the top, but I, I feel like it has a message for somebody who's willing to look like just a little bit closer. I was also, by the way, reading about um, this movie is based on a real thing that happened. What? Really? Yeah, it's based on a real murder about a woman named Elise Poller. It was her and a man who were involved, but it, it involved the same kind of thing with like a satanic band. And this guy and his friends assaulted this woman and uh, killed her. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. So I I thought it was really interesting. There's a lot of similarities between that murder and the film, especially like the heavy metal band, like possessed kind of thing. Yeah. There's so many similarities. You can't possibly think that like it's not related to it. Sure. But at the same time, I feel like it was such an intentional decision to make needy a female character yeah, and make it so much about that relationship between two women, like one who is so appealing and one who isn't. I love it. This is a movie for women. Without knowing like there was any kind of real life inspiration, I assumed the the rock band element was more playing off of, well, like playing off of celebrities who abuse women and toss them aside, but also uh, the, the like age old's you know, won't anyone think of the children? Fear can like troll concerning. Yeah, a lot of the like satanic panic. Exactly, stuff. satanic yeah. panic uh, about rock bands, and so it's wild to know that there there was something that actually happened to inspire this. But you you hit on I think one of the the best parts of the movie the the relationship between Jennifer and Needy. And I'll read a quote from A. O. Scott's review that I think actually really nails it, and we can go off from there. The antagonism and attraction between boys and girls is a relatively straightforward, if in this case, grisly matter. The real terror, the stuff of Needy's nightmares, lies in the snares and shadows of female friendship. That's really interesting, because I also feel like this movie is so much about, like, where does Jennifer end and where does Needy begin? Mm. One of the things I also thought of was there's this horror writer, Julia Kristeva, who wrote about the idea of abjection as a key component of horror movies 
And abjection is sort of when you can't tell what is the self and what is the other. Mm. And it's all about defining the other and a breakdown between the self and the other, Mm. which is so much about violation of boundaries. I kept thinking of that throughout the movie. And I think actually the interesting thing, I'm pretty sure Amanda Seyfried originally auditioned to be Jennifer and then got cast as Needy. Right. I think I saw a quote from her saying she was actually relieved because she wouldn't have to worry about how she looked throughout the movie. She could just like play the part. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's funny that this movie I wrote down like in my notes, the babe slash dork dichotomy, which is just like no glasses and glasses. (laughs) The idea that Amanda Seyfried, how do you say it? Her last name? Seyfried? Seyfried. Seyfried. You're probably right. (laughs) Yeah. The idea that um, Amanda Seyfried Seyfried is not gorgeous is like I know so hilarious to me you know like especially since the most recent thing I've seen her in is First Reformed oh yeah yeah she plays like a particularly angelically beautiful version of herself (laughs) I don't know so I just had a lot of fun in this movie being like yeah sure I'll go along with the idea that she's not totally beautiful well and she was also in mean girls playing like a stereotypical like mean hottie considering her filmography as a whole it is kind of like so is she hot is she like the fugly nerd what are you trying to tell us (laughs) we're confused yeah in in this movie in particular i'm willing to excuse it because i think it plays into sort of the like camp aesthetic that they're going for we're like everybody's hot (laughs) yeah well, and I do think she does a good job of feeling it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you can tell that she really feels insecure and dowdy next to Jennifer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And she she does a good job with the role. Her performance is incredible in this movie as well. My favorite part of the entire movie that I think is like a perfect encapsulation of it is the, um, the ending when she stabs Jennifer and Jennifer goes, my tit. <laughs> she goes, no, your heart. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. While we're on the, the subject of Needy, I found her to be a really interesting character because even if she is the more like responsible one compared to Jennifer and sort of is in Jennifer's shadow, that dichotomy of the hot friend and the nerdy friend, it's set up, but it's not really played straight. Sure. Needy is much more self-possessed and, and interesting than that initial description might otherwise lead you to believe. By the way, so much of it, too, is explicitly stated in the film is that Needy was accused of being lesbian. Right. Despite, you know, she has a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this movie is not subtle in telling us that it's a bisexual movie. Exactly. It's rare for us to get a movie that, that is this explicitly a member of the canon. Yeah, like when they hold hands at the concert originally, like that felt like a huge moment. And then obviously when they kiss, which was like, I was, like, not sure that the movie was going to go there, if it was going to be all, like, kind of implicit the whole time. And that scene ruled. I loved it. <laughs> Great kissing scene. Yeah, it was, it was like, tastefully shot, in my opinion. Like, it wasn't, like... It wasn't for the 15-year-old boys. Exactly. And given that the, the last episode we recorded was Blue is the Warmest Color, I definitely appreciated some tasteful discretion. <laughs> Given that it's the concept of the show, we should probably get into the the, the way bisexuality plays into this movie, which is a bigger topic than usual, because I feel like it really permeates the whole thing. Both Needy and Jennifer's sexualities are 
right at the center of this movie. Like it's pretty much what the whole thing is about on a, on a thematic level, at least. And their friendship is right at the center of the movie. So there's so much rich stuff to go into, but I feel like given that I'm the one dude on this call, I'm not the one to lead that conversation. You're a bisexual. I am a bisexual. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I guess for me, it reminded me of friendships I had as a kid before I was out even to myself where I I wanted more from somebody not even like a particularly close friend but just somebody in, who I was attracted to and didn't realize it of course like I never would have been like oh well I'm I have a crush on this guy I would have been like no no we're just friends and like you know I just I want to be better friends much better friends <laughs> and so in in that respect I think that the you know the first call it first 50 minutes of the movie really is in that space of it seems like needy and jennifer both want something more from each other than they have like it it shows up more obviously in the way needy behaves towards jennifer but also in the way that jennifer like targets guys that needy likes yeah right and off of that neither of them gets what they want from guys yeah you can tell needy is so unsatisfied with Chip, which is by the way, like the funniest name for like milk toast yeah. boyfriend. Yeah. That's unappealing. Um for Jennifer, I mean, prepossession, but also after she has this like insatiable need to devour men and she can't stop. It's not it's not a uh, subtle. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor chip. Poor chip. <laughs> Johnny Simmons. Johnny Simmons, who he's also in another episode, another recent episode, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Young Neil. I just loved how well they captured the haircut of like boys in 2009. I think you can safely call it the Bieber, but like, yeah, just the swoopy hair around the ears. Yeah. Most dudes, but I, I feel like especially like sweet dudes who bought a condom just for you, like had that haircut, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I believe it's called the Switch. The Switch. The I can't remember. <laughs> That's a much cooler name than it deserves. <laughs> It's interesting because it definitely feels like Jennifer is going after those guys kind of in a way that's like, well, if I can't have needy, then I'll just have the things that she wants. But it's not totally clear because there's also just a competitiveness to it. Like she is an insecure person. And so she's going to go after these men that her friend are into. I don't know. It really walks the line. And by the end of it, Needy has become Jennifer, which is the thing that she wanted most. Mm-hmm. True. In this movie, there's such a question between does Needy want Jennifer or does she want to be Jennifer? Ugh, classic queer question. <laughs> I know, right? Right? That's like the classic thing when you're a teenager and you see like cool older queers and you don't know if you have a crush on them or if you just want to be them i feel like that's a classic like trope of queer teenagedom yeah totally i mean yeah god i remember that was immediately after i came out uh the the first season of the new queer i came out and i was watching it at the same time my sister was and i texted her once i don't know if i want to be anthony or fuck his brains out and she said welcome to being bisexual That's super funny. And that's something that's come up in a lot of the, the the movies we've talked about on this show. I remember way back in episode one, The Talented Mr. Ripley, there's an element of that because the question is, you know, does Matt Damon want Jude Law or does he want to be Jude Law? Yeah. And I, I think this movie handles it 
better than a lot of the ones we've seen where it doesn't have an answer, but it delves into the complexity of it more. Absolutely. Sort of related, but separate from bisexuality. Mm -hmm. Another thing I really love about this movie is that (laughs) horrible, amazing song that Low Shoulder (laughs) writes about... Through the the trees. (laughs) (laughs) Through the trees. It's so, like, for me, growing up in 2009 (laughs) means that you... It was right after 9-11 is when you became a preteen. Your entire childhood was school shootings becoming more common. This was right after Columbine. Yeah. And you totally saw this kind of thing all the time. Like bands did this. Yeah. That part of it is so funny to me to watch in retrospect. I really enjoyed that. And it's not particularly tied to anything queer, but it is such a perfect encapsulation of like being a teenager at the time who's kind of removed from everything. I was like, damn, they nailed that song. That song is a bop. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of song you could only write in retrospect like that. And they just did it. Right. It's perfect. Yeah, I I felt like that was the biggest aspect where this movie really nails the early 2000s, like through and through, not just because it was made right after, like right at the tail end of the early 2000s, but just a, a insane degree from the music to the casual racism. The low rise jeans. The low rise jeans and that sort of sense of learned helplessness that everybody had. I think Needy calls out after Colin is murdered. Uh, this idea of like putting up banners, having a vigil and moving on. Totally. Hoping it won't happen again and doing nothing to prevent it from happening again. I think that that really captures something deep in the American psyche in that like post 9-11 school shooting ascendancy of neoliberalism, frankly, where, yeah. as The Onion puts it, there's no way to prevent this as the only nation where this regularly happens. Right. That's like exactly what happens with the teen murders, too. It's like really hard to not draw that comparison when you're watching it now. I don't know about you. I think we're close in age. Yeah. At the time, I, I remember like Virginia Tech had just happened. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Virginia Tech. Yeah. Northern Illinois. Illinois, which was really close to where I lived, had just happened. You know, our school had lockdowns when there were like shooter threats. Mm -hmm. I feel like we were right at the beginning of that. I would say Columbine was definitely like the first. By this point, it became this was like the first time it became commonplace, I think. And for me, at least, like it's very relatable seeing people process their trauma of that kind of thing through the relationship between Needy and Jennifer. Mm. I'm just like, damn, this is this is every crush I had in high school. <laughs> also, just the movie does such a good job. I mean, it's really messed up to acknowledge, but in a way, it's happened. School shootings have happened so much that we're kind of numb to it. I feel like this movie kind of like shakes the viewers a little bit to be like, hey, it's like fucked up when high school kids die in school, you know? <laughs> and it's not just fucked up when the hot girl does it because she's possessed by a demon. It's actually always this amount messed up but you're just like a little numbed out and the 9-11 stuff there were like two 9-11 references I wrote down because I just like (laughs) I thought especially given that we're recording it the day of the deadline of pulling out of Afghanistan and coming up on the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 right and like the shooters the it was the 9-11 tribute shooters that were red white (laughs) and blue (laughs) 
<laughs> that was so funny. And then the way she said, the way she said, but you have to drink them real fast or it turns brown. Like that line is so funny and somehow like yeah. is ultimately like it feels to me like very high level critique of the wars in the Middle East, but in one single line. <laughs> and then another girl says, oh, like she's traumatized. That's like something my dad went through when he came back from Operation Enduring Freedom, which was the name right. of the like military excursion that we did after 2001. I, I was like completely blown away by those two references, just the way that it was such a casual thing to talk about in the film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it predates that sort of like Rick and Morty cynicism is in now. Right. Talk about 9-11 nonstop, like to the point where, again, you get desensitized to it. Like this movie was made when like 9-11 still had some some impact when you brought it up. Yeah. Speaking of which, this is like a bit of a random aside, but I'm staying at my boyfriend's family's right now. And um, somehow his dad and I always end up talking about 9-11 when I'm here because, (laughs) (laughs) well, because his dad is a firefighter in Maine. Ah. Anytime it's like even one little detail. But anyways, that's a bit of an aside. I'll send you a song. I tried to write about it later, Nat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One thing I'll say is that I feel like you could read this film very like straightforwardly. It's just about letting go of friendships because like there's this line early on where Needy says a sandbox love never dies and she's always flashing back to her and Jennifer in a sandbox and by the end when Needy rips off the the biff the bff (laughs) necklace that seems to be this like moment that distracts Jennifer and even it almost seems to me like that takes away some of her power. Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting because I thought that you can just read the film as about like growing out of these friendships that are really foundational and shape you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially that moment is like the most important in the film to me because I think a surface level reading of this movie would be that it's about patriarchy, for example. Mm. It's about you know, what men do to women. Mm. But it's really not. Like, to me, it's about women. It's about the friendships between them. And it's about how those friendships get destroyed by men and patriarchy. Yeah, it's funny. Um, In his review, Roger Ebert called this like Twilight for Boys or something like that because he also like was bamboozled by the marketing campaign to think it was for boys. But I actually think it's much closer to Mean Girls in its in its theme and content and not just because Amanda Seyfried is there. Yeah. It's about the ways in which women let men divide them, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. It's about women participating in patriarchy that does lead me to one of the the not problems but questions i guess i have about this movie which is about jennifer's victims like once she is transformed into this succubus we see she kills four boys from their school we only really see three ones like relayed in a flashback but the three boys she kills aren't that bad frankly like maybe i'm missing something but even the like jock that she kills first is treated as more of a joke where he's just really upset that his friend died in a fire <laughs> and she like uses that to seduce him but none of them are like cruel or sexist or mean really like beyond being high school boys so i'm curious what you two think i almost wish that at least one of them had been an asshole so that it could put us more in that position of like yeah she's getting revenge on men for what's been done to her 
I do get that, but I actually like that it's not about that. I like that it's more about the women and I like that the men are sort of treated as disposable to them. Yeah, that's fair. Because it's kind of the way women are treated in most horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To me, I I felt like that was a pretty solid subversion. Yeah, I agree. And I also feel like it kind of, to me, is playing off of what I think men sometimes fear, which is that they will be objectified in the exact same way that they objectify women. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's like a really fun fear to play with. (laughs) I'm like, make men afraid. (laughs) with Jennifer's body. That's completely fair. It's funny that I'm the, you know, I'm the one complaining about it, of course, because... Maybe you're afraid. Well, yeah, and I'm still trying to center the men in the narrative where it's like, well, what did they do to deserve this? Nothing. Just like every woman who dies in a horror movie. Right. (laughs) Olga, have you seen Teeth? Oh, I love Teeth. (laughs) I think Teeth is about that sort of same idea that I mentioned. I mean, that's like the most explicit monstrous feminine movie I can possibly think of. Um, (laughs) But I, I did feel like this was, I think Teeth was 2006, right? I think Teeth was like right before Jennifer's body. I remember seeing it first. But that was another movie that people didn't really like. They were kind of like, ugh. Barbara Creed really said it well. Like she said one of the greatest fears of like the monstrous feminine and its portrayal is castration. That's like very much what that yeah. movie's about. I mean, that that goes all the way back to like Aeschylus uh, and the Oresteia where like Clytemnestra, I believe she castrates Agamemnon when she kills him. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Ancient fears persisting. I mean, hell, men are just obsessed with getting castrated. It's true. Men, men will be obsessed with getting castrated instead of going to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk more about that ending. I feel like there's so many great like emotional things going on from like the prom onwards basically like the way that jennifer lies to chip about needy in order to like make him vulnerable and the pool scene like all of the great like dialogue there between needy and jennifer and then of course culminating in needy killing jennifer what are y'all's thoughts on that particular end sequence i actually think it's the most on the nose thing ever that needy stabs her in what she thinks is her tit but is really her heart yeah like that's the movie yeah it's so much about like what's on the surface and what's beneath Mm. i I thought that was like such a good little moment and that line is so funny it's so funny you never hear a woman in a movie say tit you (laughs) don't like you never do i can't think of another movie that's like pg-13 where a woman has said tit I think Mrs. Winterborn uh, is the only one I can think of. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. What is that? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like, uh, this is a tangent, but it's like, a, I forget who the lead is, but Shirley MacLaine's in it. Oh my Brendan God. Frazier's in it. What it's the like, fuck? It's like a 90s, like, mistaken identity comedy. It's hilarious. Anyway. <laughs> well, it's also so funny that that last word tit that she utters because Jennifer has such a tragic plotline really like being kidnapped by this band and sacrificed mistakenly and then getting possessed by a demon but she's never she never comprehends how sad or fucked up her situation is the only thing she seems to get grumpy about is when she starts to get weaker and hungrier and it affects her appearance yeah like she really is so invested in her appearance which I couldn't help but think about this was pre 10 step skincare routines. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, it just resonates with me so much now where I'm also like 
however beauty obsessed we were, I think in 2009, when this came out, I feel like in a way it's gotten, if not more intense, more like regimented. Mm, More normalized. Well, more normalized and more this kind of feeling of like, well, any defect you have like actually can potentially be fixed. So instead of not worrying about it, you can actually segment your body into like a million different pieces and worry about each little piece and like fix each piece with a different serum or routine or procedure. Mm. And I don't know. It's just so funny to me that she's just like my tit because it's like, yeah, she really has been pretty superficially focused the whole time. But it's still the ripping away the locket. The idea of like a blade through the heart is the only way to kill a demon. But it almost seems like she dies the minute Needy pulls the locket off her neck. Like that was the last thing grounding her at all was their relationship and of course like it's a heart-shaped locket that is ripped away and that's when she like collapses and falls out of the sky and like obviously needy stabs her immediately afterwards but i don't know i almost feel like the symbolic death is is just as potent as her literal death for sure you know what else i was thinking of If you've watched the trailer, Mm -hmm. one of the things that they always used in marketing it was when Needy says, I thought you only murdered boys. And Jennifer says, I go both ways. Right. And it's so funny to me that that was used to market to like young guys. Right. Yeah. That like as like, oh, she's hot and not like this movie's gay. (laughs) (laughs) That plays into something we're always talking about, which is like the idea of straight men thinking women being bi is like a sexual currency thing. Straight men fetishizing bisexual women. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, it's funny because I don't think the marketing was thinking about that at all. I think they were like, oh, yeah. Right, right, totally. (laughs) Both ways. ways. (laughs) But this might be the most mainstream release of a bisexual film. Like, that was in the trailer that was on TV. I remember that. I remember that from when this movie came out, and I was like, huh, that movie looks weird as fuck. I'm not going to see it. (laughs) And then, hey, 10 years later, I was bi. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a great entry into sort of the ongoing list of unusual euphemisms movies will use rather than say the word bisexual. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, in addition to the monstrous feminine uh, or the the feminine monstrosity, what what was the term you used, Olga? Monstrous feminine. Mm. Yes, I I actually coined that term. Oh, sorry. My mistake. No, Uh, I'm just joking. (laughs) No, I know. (laughs) But no, this this movie also plays into one of my favorite slash least favorite tropes, which is the idea of like the queer monster. Yes, yes. Which was so common. We we d- had our episode about Rocky Horror Picture Show. You can find that on our uh, uh, on our Spotify page. But we <laughs> talked a lot about how B movies, because of the Hayes Code, couldn't talk about homosexuality or bisexuality at all. But they would often code their villains as queer, as gay, as bisexual. <laughs> Jennifer is queer coded. <laughs> I mean, not coded. She's, I mean, her and Needy are pretty explicitly bisexual. In that moment, at least, the idea of conflating like a euphemism about sex and a euphemism about murder does belong in like a B horror movie from the 50s. Oh, absolutely. In the best possible way. I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> Well, it is kind of funny because the whole movie, Jennifer is a monster except to Needy, who she 
kind of is preserving their friendship. Like the first encounter that they have after she's been turned into a succubus, she looks like she's about to bite her and then doesn't. She she kisses her, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Oh, right, right. You're right. You're right. She kisses her. And when she says, oh, I go both ways, it's kind of this moment where she's crossing the last line that she's kind of like set up for herself, you know? Right. That she is willing to kill Needy as well. And right. given the weird horror movie logic of this movie, murder for her at this point is basically the same as sex. Right. Well, and I feel like so much about classical morality when it comes to horror movies that have been made is about how lesbian relationships are deadly. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking of The Hunger. There's two women who are vampires kissing it and then die. I feel like that's kind of a classic sort of trope. Yeah. I don't know if you just saw Fear Street. That was a big thing there. The idea that lesbians in horror movies always die for being lesbians is sort of a a queer trope. Yeah, I've heard it called bury your gaze. Oh, yeah, yes. And it, it sort of made me think regarding the monstrous feminine, Barbara Creed wrote about how um, a lot of times adolescent women are depicted as being possessed or demonized mm. at the age of like puberty and menstruation. And it's meant to symbolize that women are on the verge of becoming something that's not a man. Mm. And it sort of echoes a fear of castration is kind of what it means symbolically in her interpretation. And she writes about Carrie and the exorcist in that regard. But I think it's kind of fun to watch this movie through that lens. Absolutely. You're getting me like, I'm like itching for some J-Store and some Barbara. (laughs) I know. I'll, I'll send you the essays. These are some of my favorites. And a lot of it comes from, like, Freudian psychoanalysis stuff, too. Mm. Um, That gets kind of nuts. Like, that's where I think Vagina Dentata comes from. from Right. Mm. But I like that this movie chose to avoid that kind of obvious stuff. Yeah, to go deeper into the idea of it. Yeah, these adolescent young women are possessed or demonized, but by what, you know? Right. You know, in this case, it's by a group of male media figures. <laughs> who, by the way, I do want to shout out uh, Adam Brody plays the the front man, Nikolai Wolf, and he is so good at being such a dickhead yes. in this movie. Mm-hmm. He really at is. At every opportunity, he is such a prick to the nth degree. It's incredible, but always in a very believable way. Yeah. Like a disturbingly believable way. He, he has this evil panic at the disco energy. <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> It just, it can't be replicated. It's so of its time. And I feel like it's best summarized by Needy's line where she says he's like skinny and twisted and evil like a petrified tree I saw as a kid. Oh, yeah, that's a really great one. Oh, my God. I loved that line. Oh, it's great. And she says, she's saying it as he's like smiling at her as he kidnaps her friend. And it's like, oh, God, it's so evil. (laughs) Yeah. He's the only character in this movie that you really really want to die and it's so satisfying when needy does break out of her institution to specifically to kill those guys which by the way i think it's so the decision to put her in the institution i think is really interesting because you can easily cut that from the movie and still get the same story totally but that that to me is a callback to Freud was the one who wrote about castration and vagina dentata and penis envy. And that's like, this movie has so much of that. But at the same time, Freud, this kind of really 
fake psychoanalytical stuff is the reason that women mm. were like put in asylums mm. for being gay or being too horny or not being horny enough. <laughs> so I kind of like that ending of her being in the asylum and busting out. Uh, I feel like it actually adds a lot to this movie and makes you realize that like, yeah, this is way more than what we think it is on the surface. Yeah. And it, it plays into this tradition of women who are right being gaslit and treated like they're insane. Yeah. Needy is the one sounding the alarm about, you know, everything oh, throughout yeah. this movie. But she's even by Chip, who seems to care about her genuinely, he interprets it as like a mental breakdown. Yeah. And I, I think that's very similar to like Laura Connor's story in Terminator 2, where, you know, the, yes. the movie starts with her in an asylum because she was preparing for an apocalypse that was coming. Yeah, absolutely. That is so funny. I just rewatched that. I can't think of any male characters, really. Like, I'm sure there's some, but I, I can't think of, a, like, a prominent one where, like, a male character is treated as insane for these things rather than, you know, just put in jail or something. Yeah. I'm trying to think of one. Maybe if they're gay. Or coded, at least. Yeah. That's, like, the only circumstances I can think of. <laughs> With men, at least, it's usually more ambiguous whether or not they are insane or if the story is true. There, There is something funny about the beginning, how it's sort of uh, has like a flashback and then a flashback. It opens with Needy in the asylum. Then it flashes back to her watching Jennifer right before she kills her. Then it flashes back to before the show even happens. It's sort of like a, a weird nesting doll of an intro. Not that I mind that. I just I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I think that makes sense because um, so much of it is about like I mentioned, like, where does Needy end and where does Jennifer begin? Mm. They're sort of one person, especially by the end. She's basically taken on Jennifer as herself almost. Yeah, yeah. she's like gained her powers. Yeah. She's, she's got like the best parts of Jennifer's possession, the flying and the strength. Yeah. Yeah, or the levitating, as she says. That's such a funny line. Oh, yeah. In the end, where he's like, she, you didn't say she could fly. And she's like, ugh, it's levitating. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> God, that whole exchange is just full of so many good insults. Like, back when you were socially relevant. I'm still socially relevant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think now, Olga, don't know how, if you got a chance to listen to the show, but we end every episode with a very traditional film scholar, very serious highbrow <laughs> thing called Mary Fuck Kill. So we're going to pick three characters, then we'll all decide who we would marry, who would we fuck, and who would we kill, as though you needed me to explain the rules of the game. Absolutely. Also, it's fuck, marry, kill. I, I've always said marry, fuck, kill, but I've heard fuck, marry, kill, too. That's so upsetting. <laughs> I'll allow it. I think, like, not out of respect to our guest, out of respect to our very first guest, please say fuck, marry, kill. You're right. It's time to play fuck, marry, kill. Thank you. Thank you. You, you need to listen to women. <laughs> Dude, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now I was I was thinking about that uh like which three characters to pick. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't think of like a really good trio. Do you do you two have any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I think needy Jennifer and Chip. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the obvious one. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Brody and the the other members of low shoulders <laughs> yeah <laughs> well if anybody from low shoulders on there i'm just gonna murder them outright <laughs> and any other answer is wrong <laughs> wait okay wait wait wait. uh chip adam brody and 
Colin, the goth guy. Ooh. Okay. Oh, yeah. I love this. Or do we want to throw J.K. Simmons in the mix as the teacher with one hand for no reason? I mean, he would he would be my answer to every single <laughs> one of those three. So. That's before, before we go any further, I do want to shout out. This is like an incredible supporting cast. Yes. Like Amy yes. Sedaris is in there. But no, like I, I agree. Chip, Nikolai Wolf, and uh, Colin the goth boy. All right. Well, I would fuck Adam Brody. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gotta. I mean, fair, but he's so evil. Yeah, but he's hot. I'm not marrying fair. him. Fair. All right. Sorry. I, sh- I shouldn't <laughs> I interrupt. Marry, I, would, I would marry Chip for obvious reasons. He's a wholesome boy. Chip is wholesome. And I would kill <laughs> the goth boy just like the movie did. They got that right. <laughs> Allie? Okay, well, I'm going to be honest. The goth boy, for me... That just really, I I can really get down with that. So that's going to go ahead and be my fuck. Wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, I know. I really didn't expect that. <laughs> I don't know. There's just, it, it, it works for me on a certain, on, it's a very specific, okay. you know, I can't say more. I can't say the more. The heart wants what it wants, you know. The heart wants what it wants. Um, I would definitely kill the lead singer of Low Shoulder. Mm. And I would I would go ahead and marry Chip, although it's tough because he is very... What's the word that Olga used earlier? It was milk-a-toast. Milk-a-toast. He's very milk-a-toast. He is very milk-a-toast. But, you know... There are worse things. You'd probably have a good time. Maybe you could kind of get him to liven up a little bit. <laughs> Nat? All right. I usually default to kill. When I'm left with a third person, then I just say, I guess I would kill them by default. Uh, in this case, I am def- I am building my lineup around killing Adam Brody. <laughs> wow! I get it. He is hot, and if it w- <laughs> if he w- if it wasn't his character, if it was just the actor, I would. But his character made me so mad. You guys are Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my mother's Catholic. You take that back. <laughs> but then I- I'm gonna switch it up even more. I would fuck Chip. If only to teach him a thing or two. But I would marry the goth guy, Colin. Because, like, wow. you know what? He's going to grow up to have a wildly passionate artistic life. And he's, like, into English. I just feel like we'd have more to talk about than, you know, Chip. Wow. wow. Okay. That's, a, that's an interesting spread. We have no consensus. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, all right. Well, Olga, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have anything you want to promote or or plug or anything like that? I don't have anything. I don't do shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was super fun. Yeah, this was so great. Thank you for being here. We'll drop your your social in the episode description if you want so people can follow you on Twitter. Our info's down there as well. Thank you as always to Billy Libby and Abby Austin for our theme song and artwork, respectively. I just want to say, Olga, come back anytime. I think you should be like our resident horror expert. Yes, I'm in. Hell yeah. Yeah.